Hello and welcome. You are listening to the teaching ministry of Coastal Oaks Church in Rockport, Texas. It is our hope that you will be encouraged and that your desire to follow Jesus Christ will be challenged and strengthened as you listen to this podcast. For more information on location, service times, and what to expect on your next visit, go to CoastalOaksChurch.org. Now grab your Bible and study along with us as you listen. Good morning, everybody. How are y'all doing today? Doing okay? All right. Wonderful. My name is Chris, and I, uh, as, as Billy said earlier, I get to serve at the School of Christian Studies. I do um, our finances and that sort of thing. Basically, when I try to explain my job to people, I tell them just that I have, like my love language is spreadsheets. And that communicates with some people, and uh, that's not everybody out there, I realize that. But it's good that there are some of us weirdos out there that like doing that kind of stuff, and I do. I, I enjoy that. Um, I get to do a lot of the administrative things, but I also get to serve uh, as one of our faculty members, and I get to meet with our students, and I love what we get to do for this reason, because we are a part of trying to equip and train leaders for the local church. We love the local church, and we love to see it flourishing. We love to see when God does something incredible through the local local church. And so for me, one of the great things about my job is that I get to come to places like Coastal Oaks on a Sunday and get to meet you and uh, just worship with you and hear about the good things that are happening here. And so thank you for having me today. This is like the best part of my job. The most fun I get to have is when I get to go and serve in the local church. I love it. And um, what a day to be here. It's Father's Day. Happy Father's Day to you. Uh, How many dads in here? You got breakfast in bed today? Anybody? Why does that not happen on Father's Day, right? I mean, what's going on? Like, on Mother's Day, I am the first one up. There's no sun out. I'm getting breakfast ready, laying out the flowers. The presents are all there. On Father's Day, I am the first one up. Nobody is up. Uh, And, in fact, the silence was broken this morning by my son getting up. And his first words were, Dad, do you mind if I change the channel? Like, I don't want to watch whatever it is you're watching. I was like, man, Father's Day, it's just a different kind of day, isn't it? It's, uh, It's not Mother's Day. That's... For sure. No, um, I'm sure they'll take me out to lunch. Or we'll, we'll have fun in a little bit. Uh, it's, it's fun being a dad. I love getting to hang out with my kiddos. We get to do some great, great stuff. It's a lot of fun. Um, today is a great day to remember that. So thank you, dads, for being here today on Father's Day. And... Um, bringing your family along, all of those things. My wife and I were talking recently, and uh, I I dropped our kids off at school one morning, and as I was driving home, um, I noticed that there was a car that had just been in an accident. Now, it wasn't like one of those serious rollover, kind of bad flipping sort of accidents, but it was bad enough that the people inside were a little shaken up, I'm sure. They didn't look too injured, but just shaken up, as any car accident would do. And uh, I could tell it was a mom, and, and she had two young kids, and so I did what any of us in the room uh, would do is I, I just stopped to make sure she was okay, that she didn't need to borrow a phone or call anybody, um, that there was somebody on the way, and there, there was a fire truck that was coming to just check them all out, make sure they were okay. That's, that's nothing notable, right? We would all do the same sorts of things in here, because there's things we do because that's what we should do as good humans. That's just what we do. That's how we serve people uh, in the world around us. If you see a car that is stalled out in an intersection, you, you get out and you help push that car uh, just out of the way. Those are the kinds of things that we do because we're good human beings. When we're at HEB and we see the sign that says 15 items or less, 
We don't go in that line if we have 16 items or more, right? Like that's just, that's what we do because there's some person in the back who loves spreadsheets who's counting. That is six lines that puts you at 16. You should not be in this line, right? Nobody else in here is judgmental, just me. I'll pray later for forgiveness. Yeah, we all kind of do that. No, they're, they're just those things that we ought to do because we're good humans, because that's how we live in society. You help people out, you do those sorts of things. But then there's some other things that you probably do, some situations you encounter in life that you don't do them for the good of humanity. You do them because that's like your responsibility. There, there's not somebody else who's going to fulfill that responsibility. In fact, being a dad brings a lot of those situations up, right? When my kids, their bike tires go flat, who's the one who changes the tubes in the tire? That's me. I'm, I'm the one who has to order the tube and then put it in and do all of that fun stuff. And I pump up their tires. Those, those are my kind of responsibilities, not for the good of humanity, but just for my kids. That's what I do. I, I serve them that way. One time my wife and I were coming home from a long trip. We'd been gone for several days visiting family over Christmas, that type of thing. And we had left uh, to, to get home pretty late in the evening, knowing that the kids were going to fall asleep in the car, which they did. It was wonderful. We got home. We lay them in bed. Everything's fantastic. Um, and uh, I'm, I'm about to walk downstairs after putting my son in bed, and I hear a scream come from the downstairs bathroom. And I'm like, oh my goodness, what is happening? And I rush in there to the bathroom, and it's my wife. And we found out that a rat had died in our toilet while we were gone. That is not a fun way to come home to anything, right? It's late at night. We're tired. Oh my goodness. But the worst part was is I started looking around the room and realized you know who's going to have to deal with that this guy right like my dad wasn't showing up like he there's nobody else who was coming over so I had to go get the hoe from the garage and put on gloves and all I had were some ski gloves handy so I looked ridiculous and like a hoe and that it was was terrible but I had to do that because that's just the responsibility right it wasn't necessarily for the good of humanity it was that's that's kind of where I was in that moment I needed to do it well today we're going to talk about something a little different that isn't just something we do because we we ought to do it that's that's what it's like to be in community with other people. It's not even something you do because it's just a responsibility you have. But we're going to talk about the idea of calling. You see, that that thing that God places in your life, that calling that he gives you, that he has uniquely gifted you to do, uniquely positioned you to do, this unique calling that you have for your life. We're going to think about that today. But if you're anything like me, the very idea of calling or purpose or kind of why you were made, that very idea might make you a little bit nervous. There might be part of you that is already a little uncomfortable, just not quite sure about this whole idea of a calling. And here would be my guess. Again, if you are anything like me, this is why it makes me nervous. Because anytime I start to think about what God might have me do in my life. Anytime I think about perhaps God, this is what you have created me to do or what you've gifted me to do, what you have positioned me to do. As soon as I even have a flicker of an idea of this is maybe what God might want me to do, immediately I begin to think of all of the reasons why there is no way I could ever do that. Right? Like as soon as I think about perhaps, God, you are calling me to do this, immediately the laundry list of excuses. Why? Oh, no, no, no. I could, I could never do that. I could never do it for this reason and that reason and that reason. I start to think of why this calling could never be accurate. Maybe some of those reasons are because I feel unqualified. 
So maybe it's a lack of education or just a lack of experience. And so I think about what God is maybe bringing my way or what God is asking me to do. And immediately it's like, no, God, you don't understand. I'm completely unqualified for that. I don't, I don't have the education. I don't have the experience. I don't have the know-how. Like, God, you, you've got the wrong person, all right? I can't do that. Or maybe perhaps our reason for not being able to do it is, is because not only we feel unqualified, but maybe we feel disqualified. Maybe there's some choice that we can look back on and say, you know what, because of that choice, like God can't use me again. Or maybe there was a time when we know very clearly God was calling us to do something and instead we went the other direction and we are just sure now that there is no way that God could ever use us. And so to even think for a moment about the idea of calling might make us nervous, might make us a little unsure. We might already be thinking of the myriad of reasons why we can't do something. But I want you to see today, we're going to look in Acts chapter 1 in just a minute um, at a couple of verses. And what I'm hoping you'll see today is that perhaps the thing that you think is going to hinder your service is exactly what God intends to use to build his kingdom. Perhaps that thing that you would say, this is why I can't fulfill God's calling on my life. Maybe that very thing is exactly what God wants to use to build his kingdom. And so we're going to look at Acts chapter 1, verses 6 through 11. And if you've grown up around church, if you've been coming to church for a while, these are probably familiar verses. Uh, at least one of them I'm sure you've, you've probably heard before. But we're going to read them together. I think they'll be on the screen, and so you can follow along in your Bible or on the screen. But this is what is happening in Acts chapter 1, starting in verse 6. So when they, that is Jesus and the disciples, when they had come together, the disciples asked Jesus... Lord, are you restoring the kingdom to Israel at this time? Jesus said to his disciples, It is not for you to know the times or periods that the Father has set by his own authority, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come on you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. Well, after he had said this, he was taken up as they were watching, and a cloud took him out of their sight. While he was going, they were gazing into heaven, and suddenly two men in white clothes stood by them. They said, Men of Galilee, why do you stand looking up into heaven? This Jesus who has been taken from you into heaven will come in the same way that you have seen him going into heaven. This is an interesting little story, interesting uh, passage right here, because this is the final moments that Jesus spends with his disciples. Before he ascends into heaven, this is it. This is the last conversation. These are his final words. And so you can think about all of the history that they've had. They've been together for several years. They have seen some amazing things. They've traveled all over Israel. Um, they, They have listened to him teach. But this is it. This is the final moment. This is the last little bit of teaching. Jesus is going to be able to provide them. And, and I can just picture them as being very interested. Like, what is he going to say? What, what's, what's he going to tell us? What's this last word that he's going to leave with us? And so you can, you can just probably picture the disciples gathering around him. Like, we just want to hear this one last thing you're going to tell us. What, what are you going to say? What are you going to teach us, Jesus? And Jesus gives them in this moment the calling. He leaves them with their calling. He says, you are going to receive power and you are going to be my witnesses. But this teaching is the result of a question that the disciples ask him. If you notice there in, uh, in the first few verses, 
they ask a question of Jesus. And what is that question? They say, Lord, are you now going to restore the kingdom to Israel? Are you now going to restore the kingdom to Israel? You see, after three years of teaching, after three years of miracles, after seeing Jesus go here and there, after him dying, after him resurrecting, their question, their final question for him is, Jesus, are you going to restore the kingdom as in, are we finally going to have our political power? Are we going to have our political kingdom? Jesus is now when we get to throw out the Romans, where we get to get rid of this oppression. Jesus is now the moment that you are going to initiate, that you are going to restore, that that you are going to have this kingdom set up on earth. Jesus is now the time. You see, that's what it's about for the disciples. Even after several years, even after hearing what Jesus has taught, in their minds, it still comes back to the idea of, oh, no, 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 no. But this is about a kingdom here on earth. This is about us being in charge. This is about us having power. For the disciples, that was the key kind of idea. They had seen Jesus teach, and that was great. But now in their minds, I'm sure they were thinking, wait, this guy was crucified, and now he's alive again? Oh, man, there's nobody who can stop us now. Like, we've got to be in charge. Like, what can you do to this guy? He's like a superhero. This is amazing. Jesus is now the moment where we're going to establish the kingdom here on earth. Are we going to have our political reign? Jesus, are we going to be able to be in charge, and are we going to have the power? That's their question to him. Jesus tells them that indeed you are going to have power. But was it the kind of power that they were looking for? No, it wasn't, right? It's the power, not for political gain, not for a physical kingdom, but it was to establish his church. You see, Jesus says you are going to have power to increase a spiritual kingdom. You are going to have power to be my witnesses. And what a fascinating word that Jesus chooses there. Witness. He, he calls them his witnesses. The word there in Greek is the word martus, which is where we get the word martyr. So whenever you hear about somebody being a martyr, it means that they are somebody who has been a witness for something, uh, right? So a martyr is a witness. That's that in our heads, we can think of those two things as being connected. But really, the definition of a witness in Jesus' time is the same for us. So where, where do you think about when, when you hear the word witness? What, what comes to mind? What setting? Is it a courtroom? Is that, do you kind of think about that? Maybe like law and order or, uh, or, or some legal setting? Because that, that was really the same idea for witnesses in Jesus' time. A witness in, in these times was a legal observer of facts. Somebody who had seen something. Right, So they would see something and then they could testify in front of a group of people and say, this is what I saw. Uh, I'll, I'll swear that this is true. This is what I heard. You can be sure of all of these facts. And that, that's what a witness was. A witness had direct personal knowledge. You, you couldn't be a very good witness if you're like, no, no, no. I heard the story from my neighbors, friends, sisters, brothers, grandmothers, dog watchers, best friends, aunts, next door neighbor. No, you, like, that's not a very good witness. Right, A witness... Has to be able to say, I saw it with my own eyes, or I heard it myself. I was there when it happened. A witness has direct. 
personal knowledge. A few years ago, when LeBron James was in Cleveland the first time, when he was losing titles in Cleveland the first time, um, the, Nike had an ad campaign that said, we are all witnesses. They had shirts printed up that said witness, and they would hand them out at Cleveland Cavaliers games. And they had a big banner across the street that said, we are all witnesses. And this was their ad campaign. The idea that they were tapping into is that LeBron James was so good that you wanted to witness what he was doing for yourself. You didn't want to just hear about it or watch it on SportsCenter later. Like you wanted to see it for yourself. You wanted to be a witness and have this direct personal knowledge because that's what a witness has. A witness would usually show up when somebody was signing like an oath or a treaty or maybe entering into a contract. So two people, like two parties say, yeah, our land is only going to go to right here. You would want a witness there to say, yeah, I saw them. This person agreed to that. This person agreed to that. They shook hands. They signed on the dotted line. That's what a witness would do. And a witness was supposed to be trustworthy. In fact, in the book of Deuteronomy, the law says for somebody who lied as a witness, there was some harsh treatment, some harsh punishment of that person because a witness had to be trustworthy. They had their direct personal knowledge. And Jesus says, this is what I want you to do. I want you to be my witnesses, to share the story of what you have, the direct personal knowledge. You can be trustworthy witnesses. Go and be my witnesses. And Peter takes that calling seriously. It's like he hears Jesus and bam, he gets on the road and he takes it seriously. In fact, one of the themes of the book of Acts is this idea of being a witness. We see Peter in several different situations that um, he goes out and he starts telling people. He witnesses about what he saw. In fact, in Acts chapter 2, he is talking about how this Jesus God raised up, and of that we are witnesses. He stands up in front of a group of people. He's got a pretty simple message. He says, Jesus was alive, you killed him, he came back to life, and we have all seen that. We're all witnesses. Jesus was alive. You killed him. He's come back to life. Of that, we are all witnesses. And he says this over and over. Acts 2.40, he says, with many other words, he bore witness and continued to exhort them, saying, save yourselves from this crooked generation. Acts chapter 3, Peter's standing in Solomon's porch and says, you denied the holy and righteous one and asked for a murderer to be granted to you, and you killed the author of life whom God raised from the dead. To this we are witnesses. Acts chapter 5, Peter and the apostles answered, we must obey God rather than men. The God of our fathers raised Jesus whom you killed by hanging him on a tree. God exalted him at his right hand as leader and savior to give repentance to Israel and forgiveness of sins. And we are witnesses to these things over and over. Peter goes out and he takes the calling that Jesus has given him seriously and he goes out and shares the information of what he knows, the direct personal knowledge, the trustworthy news of what Jesus had done. And that's amazing. It's fun to see. It's incredible to see Peter going out and doing all of these things and people come to know the Lord. But what is truly remarkable about Acts chapter 1, what is kind of just staggering to think about is that Jesus would even give them this calling to begin with. It's incredible that Jesus would actually gather these disciples close to him and say, I want you to go and be my witnesses. And here's why. That's rewind the story a little bit. From Acts chapter 1, Jesus about to ascend, let's rewind the story back to the last night that Jesus is alive before he's crucified. 
Jesus, it says, is arrested and put in a place of holding, and then he's taken before these different groups. What we'll see as we read through this story in the different Gospels is that Jesus is on trial in this last night of his life. Jesus, he's arrested, then he's put in this holding place, then he's taken before the council. And the council would have been elders, it would have been the chief priests, it would have been the scribes, it would have been all the notable authority figures in Jewish life in Jerusalem at that time. Jesus is taken before them. Then he's taken before Pilate, who is a Roman governor, and then taken before Herod, and then taken before Pilate again. He's bounced back and forth to each one of these different courtrooms, basically. Jesus is taken there, and each time he's questioned, and they, they want to know, if you're the Christ, tell us, right? Are you the king of the Jews? It says that Herod questioned him at some length, but Jesus made no answer. Jesus is on trial this last night of his life. There are accusers. They're saying, he said this. He said he was going to do this. We saw him do this. There are people who show up and they accuse him of blasphemy. Jesus is on trial. And he's not just on trial, you know, for a slap on the wrist. Jesus is on trial for his life. His life is hanging in the balance in this moment. There's accusers. There's a courtroom And there's Jesus. Now, imagine you're on trial for your life and you know the charges are false. Imagine you're on trial and you know that there is no weight to these charges at all. What is the one thing you would want to have in like in the courtroom with you? What's the one thing you would want to make sure that shows up that that could counter all of the claims of your accusers? What is the one thing you would want to make sure you had at your trial if you were going to go free? You'd want a witness, wouldn't you? Somebody who could show up and say, no, 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 no. What they're saying is false. I saw this. Somebody who could counter all of those claims. You would want a witness. And at this critical point in his life, the most critical moment, his life hanging in the balance, Jesus can't find a single witness. Now, they're there. They're within earshot. They know what's going on, but none of them step forward. We read the story of Peter. Peter, it says, is in the courtyard as Jesus is on trial. As people are accusing him, as people are hitting him, as people are yelling about what he's done. Jesus is, or Peter's in the courtyard warming his hands by a fire. And it says somebody notices him. And they say, hey, don't you know this guy? And Peter says, no, 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 not me. Got the wrong person. A little while later, as Peter's listening in, they're probably saying more things that Jesus has done wrong. And Peter knows in his heart, those, those are not right. That's, that's false. That's incorrect. Somebody else says, hey, you've traveled with this guy. And Peter says, no, not me. You must be thinking of somebody else. And the trial's going on longer. And Peter's standing there listening. And finally, somebody says, no, I know. You know this guy. And Peter says, what? No, not me. I've never met him before. You see, in this critical moment, life hanging in the balance, Jesus doesn't have a single witness. None of them testify in front of the council, in front of Herod, in front of Pilate. None of them. They all flee. Jesus can't find a single witness. Now, fast forward to Acts chapter 1, back to our main narrative. And Jesus says, I am calling you to be my witnesses And imagine for just a moment how much that word must have stung when they first heard it. That each of those disciples, when Jesus says, I want you to be my witness, their first thought was more than likely, oh, we just failed at that. Like, we just let you down, Jesus. Why would you call us to do that? We just showed you that we can't. 
Like you needed a witness and all of us left. None of us showed up for you. Jesus, why would you call us to do this very thing? Jesus says, I'm calling you to be my witnesses. And those disciples must have just been completely crushed. Thinking there is no way that we can do that. But Jesus makes a twist in his calling. He's not saying, I'm calling you to be my witnesses, so what I want you to do is to try really, really hard. I know you tried hard before, but I want you to try even harder. I want you to be more determined, that it's really just going to be about willpower. That's what I'm after in this moment. No, Jesus says, I am calling you to be my witnesses, and you are going to receive power from the Holy Spirit. You see, Jesus knows it's already been established when they try by their own power to be witnesses. Are they any good at it? Absolutely not. They completely fail. But Jesus calls them to do this exact thing that they have failed at. Except this time, it's not going to be depending on their own power. It's going to be depending on the power of the Holy Spirit. That is the calling that Jesus makes to them and the calling he makes to us. Not to depend on our own power, but to depend on him. To depend on the Holy Spirit. To do something truly incredible that we can't do on our own. Jesus calls them to be his witnesses. And this is a regular part of God's pattern. You see, over and over again throughout the scripture, God takes those who are unlikely, those who you would never pick to do something, and those are the ones that he calls to do some unbelievable service. And I wonder, what does God see when he looks at your life? You might see failure, but I wonder what God sees when he looks at at your life. There's this man named Gideon in the Old Testament. Gideon is a coward. There's really just no other way of saying it. We meet Gideon when he's threshing wheat in a wine press. Now, to thresh wheat, you would have to throw it up in the air. The wind would carry off the the parts that you don't want. The good stuff would fall back down. So you would have to throw it up. You'd have to be outside. But it says he's doing this in a wine press, which is an enclosed area. Not much wind. It's a fool's errand that Gideon is on. But the reason he's doing it is because he's scared. You see, there were people who were taking over their land, that were taking people's possessions, that were stealing from them, and Gideon is hiding out. He is fearful. He's hiding in this wine press because he knows if I take my weed out there, they're going to take it from me. I've got to hide. He's an absolute coward in this moment, completely shrinking back. But an angel of the Lord shows up, and you know what this angel says? Greetings, O mighty man of valor. And you have to imagine, Gideon was like, wait, who are you? Like, no, it's just me in here. Who are you talking about? Greetings, almighty man of valor. Who do you mean? But you see, when God looked at Gideon, he didn't see a coward. He saw somebody who was a mighty man of valor. And I wonder what he sees when he looks at your life. Jacob, uh, in the uh, book of Genesis, he was a heel-grabbing, backstabbing, manipulative, just terrible little brother And yet when God looked at him, he didn't see these things. He saw the potential to be a great leader of his people. And I wonder what God sees when he looks at your life. David was the youngest of his brothers. And in fact, when important meetings were happening, David was out with the sheep. They they didn't care his opinion. But when God looked at David, he didn't just see the youngest son who was only good enough to tend sheep. He saw somebody who could be a king for his people. Mary was an unmarried teenager, and yet God saw a servant who would bear his son. I wonder what God sees when he looks at your life. Paul was a violent terrorizer of the early church, but God saw an evangelist who uh, could go and bear witness, who could take the gospel to unreached places. 
And I wonder what God sees when he looks at your life. And our friend Peter. Peter was somebody who had abandoned his friend. He was a failure, somebody who was defeated. And yet God saw a preacher who could bear witness to everyone he met. And I wonder what God sees when he looks at your life. In the end of the book of John, we get this great story, this great interaction between Jesus and between Peter. And it says that Peter and the other disciples had gone out fishing. And they had fished all night and hadn't caught anything. And let me say, there are some stories in the Bible that are hard for me to identify with. Right? When they talk about marching across the wilderness, I've never had to do that. When they talk about some of the battles, um, I've, I've never had to fight in that kind of way. But when they tell me a story about people who fish for a long time and didn't catch anything... I know that story, right? I have lived that story. I've been there. And that's where we find Peter and the disciples. They've been fishing for a long time, and they haven't caught anything. And suddenly this shadowy figure from the shore yells out, Cast your nets on the other side. And they do. And they start to catch fish. And not just a little bit of fish, but they catch so many fish that the nets are ripping and Peter recognizes that, that's not just a man out there. That's not just some person. That's not a fishing guide. That's Jesus. And he jumps out of the boat and he swims into shore. Now, in, in the gospel story, this is the first moment that it's just Peter and Jesus together. And you can probably picture what Peter was feeling in that moment, right? He's, he's denied Jesus. He's abandoned him. He's let him down. And you can just picture what it's like as he's walking up to Jesus if you ever had that situation where you've had to, to go in front of your boss or somebody else who you know you've done wrong and somebody you know you, you're just about to, like, they're going to let you have it. And that's Peter in this moment. And we can just picture him probably looking down, not wanting to make eye contact, mumbling a lot, just waiting for Jesus to let him have it, right? For Jesus to just tell him, I warned you. I said you were going to deny me, and you did. You're such a fool, Peter. Peter, you, how could you have messed up so badly? Why weren't you there for me? I've done all of these things for you, Peter, and yet in the one moment I finally need something, you let me down. You know Peter's just like ready. He's just braced for it, for Peter to let him have it. But that's not what happens at all in the story. And in fact, if you go and read it, what you'll see is that Jesus, it says, there's fish on the fire and there's warm bread. You see, in a moment when Peter was probably expecting a lecture, Jesus has made him breakfast. In a moment where Peter expected condemnation, Jesus offers him grace and forgiveness. I wonder what Jesus would see when he looks at your life. You see, each one of us in here, when we think about the calling that God has on our life, we can probably think of a number of reasons why we could never do what God is calling us to do. I'm sure the disciples in that moment on a hillside, when Jesus said, I'm calling you to be my witnesses, they probably thought, there's no way, we can't do it. But Jesus reminds them, you're going to receive power from the Holy Spirit. It's not your power I'm interested in. It's your faith and your trust and the power that you will have access to through the Holy Spirit. And they go and they share the news. And in fact, we carry on the legacy of what they did thousands of years ago. And so I want to ask you some questions, church, as we close today. What if God is as good as it says he is in the scripture? What if, what if he loves you as much as it says he does. And what if whenever you see failure in your life, God sees potential to do something amazing in his kingdom? 
What if the very thing that you think is going to hinder your service is the exact way that God wants to call you today? And I'd wonder, church, how is he calling each one of us? Would you pray with me?